Hey everybody, it's Father Chris Culpepper, the rector at Christ the Redeemer Anglican Church here in Fort Worth, Texas. And we are continuing our, surrey, our series, easy for me to say, called uh, Back to the Basics this year. And if you've been tracking along with us, we are in the first section of that series uh, where we're studying the Bible and we're using an accompanying book called 30 Days to Understanding the Bible by Max Anders. And you can find those uh, resources, access to those resources on our website. We're using the ESV Study Bible, and we're using um, the accompanying book, 30 Days to Understanding the Bible. So we've made it through three sections. Um, we looked at the creation era. We looked at the area of the patriarchs or the patriarchal era. And this week we're going to look at the um, Exodus narrative. So I'm going to follow along in the format that I've been doing the first couple of weeks. I'll give us some introductory comments. I will pause uh, to allow you to work your way through the chapter, and then I'll come back with some further reflections. So let's just begin by a quick review of last week in the patriarchal era. Last week, we looked at who we called four major men in Genesis. These were Abraham, his son Isaac, his son Jacob, who became Israel, and his son Joseph. And we acknowledge that each of these four major men played essential parts in what we call covenant theology. We saw how God's covenant with Abraham um, allowed Abraham to become the one we call the father of the faith, the father of the Judeo-Christian faith. And we saw how that covenant continued uh, through the lineage of Isaac, the promised child, again Jacob, who became Israel. Israel became uh, the, the name of the nation we know as Israel, and then Joseph uh, was the one who continued that covenant. And Joseph, as we acknowledged last time, is really the first one who is a, a major uh, prefigurement of Jesus the Christ. So uh, as we come to the end of Genesis and we enter into the beginning of Exodus, we see that the story takes a very interesting twist at the end of Genesis. At the end of Joseph's life, Israel and Egypt, the two um, groups of people, uh, can't quite call Israel a nation yet, but we, the nation of Egypt and the people of Israel, they enjoyed a very amicable relationship. In fact, at the end of Genesis, we see Joseph and his father's house remain in Egypt, as the scriptures say. However, as soon as we turn the page to Exodus chapter 1, things take a real turn for the worse. We're told in the scriptures that the new king of Egypt does not know Joseph, and the scriptures say in his shrewdness, the new king or the Pharaoh, he binds the Israelites into slavery. So with that tantalizing transition, I'll stop here, allow you to read your chapter, and I'll come back with a summary and some supplemental teaching. Well, welcome back, everyone, and I hope you enjoyed working your way through the chapter. Um, I was saying to Melissa Smith off camera here just a minute ago, buckle your seatbelt because this is the story of Exodus and there is a lot to talk about and I don't want to shortchange you in the teaching that I have to offer this time. So I'll start just with a summary of the chapter as you work your way through the chapter. You got that main sentence or that main idea that says through Moses, God delivers the Hebrew people from slavery in Egypt and then he gives them the law. And we saw in that main sentence or that main idea four main parts to the chapter. The first was deliverance, which is the freedom from slavery in Egypt. The second is the law, God giving his Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. The third is Kadesh Barnea, the place of rebellion in, against God. 
And the fourth is the 40 years of wandering, the consequences of rebelling against God. Well, as I said a minute ago, this is certainly good and true as far as it goes, but there is so much more to the story than that. So I want to step back and I want to give us a bigger picture of the book of Exodus because not only is it an engaging and epic story, it is also the story that becomes the major motif of the Old Testament and the major setup for the New Testament. So let's remember our pattern, our pattern that we talked about in the first session, the session on creation, our pattern that we see forming and reemerging all throughout Scripture, creation, fall, judgment, mercy, and new creation, right? And we, we see that pattern here. We see the creation of a covenant with Abraham. We see the fall of the Israelite people into bondage, into Egypt. We see the judgment against the Egyptians. We see mercy shown to the Israelites. And we see this new creation emerging in the giving of the law. Now is when we really start to see that pattern unfold in Scripture. It's a pattern that certainly works in favor of the Israelites as we see them coming out of bondage into freedom, out of, out of Egypt, into the land that God had promised them. But it's also a, a pattern that works um, against them in the desert um, where they have their own rebellion and suffer their own judgment and have to uh, reemerge as, as another new creation, if you will, that crossing out of the desert through the River Jordan and into the land that God had promised them. So it's not just things that happen to Israel where we see that pattern. It's also things that will happen within Israel. And, and what we'll see is that that pattern emerges on a, on a macro level for both Jew and Gentile and comes to its culmination in Christ. We'll see that as we continue to go forward. There's a major point that I want to land on here that kind of brings all of this to a head. As we will see at the end of the story, no one escapes the weight of the law. No one escapes the weight of the law. So let's back up and do a summary of the book of Exodus, and I'll have a few concluding thoughts at the end of that. In the early chapters of the Exodus narrative, Moses, uh, he sees the injustice against his own people, the Israelite people, and he takes it upon himself to lash out against an Egyptian oppressor, and Moses kills him. Well, things don't quite work out the way that he imagined they would. His own people turn against him and, and, and say to him, who, who are you to be the judge over us? And Moses has to flee into the desert. However, it's in the desert that everything changes for Moses. God reveals himself to Moses in the desert as the great I am. And basically God says to Moses, let's try again, only this time let's try it my way. Now, there's a lot that happens after that, and we're going to have to skip through that fairly, fairly quickly, but I hope you all have some familiarity with the story. The, the story continues because God uses Moses to perform mighty miracles in the sight of Pharaoh, the, the plagues that are levied against Pharaoh, how God uses those plagues to deliver the Israelites from bondage into freedom through the Red Sea, as the psalmist says, the, the water stands up like walls on either side as the Israelites pass through on dry land. We'll see how God makes another covenant with Moses that we talked about it earlier, the Ten Commandments, and we'll come back to that here at the end. We see the story continue because the Israelites rebel against God, and they were consigned to 40 years of wandering in the desert. If you don't know, 40 years is emblematic of a generation, so God allows one generation to pass in the desert wandering. 
The story continues, and we see in that time that God gives very specific instructions to Moses about how to worship, and we'll come back to the importance of that too. And then, as we talked about, we see in the end how Moses himself, even as faithful as he was, also ends up suffering the just judgment of God under the weight of the law. So there's the basic outline, the basic uh, narrative of, of the story of the book of Exodus. I hope you take time to go back and read it. It's 40 chapters in length. It'll take you, I don't know, 15 to 30 minutes to read, depending on your pace of reading. It is rich in theological history, and it's something that you'll want to put in your spiritual tool chest as we continue our study of the scripture. But what I want to do now is just give a little bit of supplemental teaching and sort of ask ourselves the question, what do we do with all of this, with all of the stories and the plagues and the deliverance and the water standing up like walls and the commandments and all of those things? Well, as I said before, Exodus becomes the major motif for the Old Testament, and it becomes a setup for all of the theology in the New Testament. As I also said, we see that pattern of salvation unfold, creation, fall, judgment, mercy, and new creation. So I want to finish this week with three ideas that I want to focus on. I'll conclude with these three thoughts that I want us to take away from the lesson. First is covenant. Second is worship. And third is the relationship of law and grace. So let's start with the covenants. The covenants, as we've talked about before, in general terms, the covenants tell us two things. Who God is in his character, and secondly, the kind of relationship that God wants to have with us. Now, the covenants in particular, as they unfold in, in human history and salvation history, the covenants in particular tell us what God is doing at specific points in time. So we talked about the covenant with Abraham, which, as we have said, is a manifestation of God's goodness. The elements of that covenant involve things like people, property, progeny, presence, and promise. Those are all manifestations of the character of God and declare to us that God is a good God. It's a covenant of goodness. Now we come to the covenant that God makes with Moses, and we would talk about that covenant as a manifestation of God's justice. God gives the moral code to Moses, or rather through Moses, to the people of Israel is what we, what we know as the Ten Commandments. The first four, as we know, teach us how to love God. The last six teach us how to love each other. And because God is a just God, he gives consequences for breaking his commandments. For Israelites, it was wandering in the desert. For Moses, he was not able to enter into the promised land. And again, we'll come back to that in the end when we talk about the relationship between law and grace. So that's a little bit more about covenant theology. The second point I want to make has to do with worship. And the main thing I want to say about worship is that we don't get to make it up on our own. In fact, as we see the story unfold, when humans do make up worship, there are all kinds of atrocities that occur. One example, of course, is Aaron in the golden calf. While Moses is up receiving the Ten Commandments on the top of Mount Sinai, Moses is, I mean, Aaron is down at the bottom making a golden calf and telling the people they should worship the golden calf. Uh, that's a, maybe a more benign example, even though it does have its own judgment that's levied against it. I'll invite you to read the text. But, but let's look at that example in light of, of two other false gods in, in other countries. Let's look first at the false gods of Egypt, the land that the Israelites were leaving. If we think about the purpose of the plagues, the purpose of the plagues was to reveal the impotence of these false Egyptian gods. 
the nature of these ten plagues was to levy ten judgments against ten false gods of Egypt. The narrative and the point of the story is the one true living God, the great I Am, is victorious over all of the false gods. So if that's a little bit about the gods that they were leaving behind, what about the land they were entering, the land of Canaan, the land that God had promised them, and the Canaanite people, as they were called in Scripture? Well, the Canaanites were also polytheistic, like the Egyptians. They, too, committed all kinds of atrocities. One god they served was Moloch, a false god to whom they actually sacrificed children. Another god was the, the, the Asherah god, uh, a fertility god, a god of prostitution. And we would see all throughout the Old Testament how Israelites would have a constant struggle against this false god. Another false god of the Canaanites that we know very well is the god of Baal or Baal. Um, that god was a direct enemy of Yahweh and that god also had an association with ritual sex. In contrast, we see in Exodus that God, God specifically describes how we are to worship him. Specifically in Exodus 20, we have the introduction of animal sacrifice. We find the idea of sacrifice culminated and completed in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And I'll give you a teaser for another class that I teach called Christian Leadership Training, where we explore in depth the theology of sacrifice. So you may want to sign up for that class later. Also in the same way, worship is prescribed in the New Testament by Jesus Christ himself. And it's what we call the Eucharist or the Mass or Holy Communion. Again, we don't get to make it up as we go. God prescribes to us worship that is pleasing to him. And so we see at the Last Supper, Jesus says, Do this in remembrance of me. Eat this bread. Drink this cup. This is how I want you to remember me. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul echoes the words of Jesus as he declares, When you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim his death until he comes again in glory. The Eucharist for 2,000 years has always been the central act of corporate worship for the Christian community known as the church because that's how God gave us to worship in the New Testament, God in Christ Jesus. So we see that foreshadowed with the animal sacrifice in the Old Testament. We see it culminated and completed in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross 2,000 years ago. As he poured out his blood for us on the cross, he continues to pour out his blood for us every Sunday morning in the Eucharistic feast. Thirdly and finally, I'll conclude with the relationship um, of law and grace that we see unfolding here in Exodus. In Exodus chapter 17, Moses, the leader of the law, the giver of the law, if you will, Moses himself disobeys a direct commandment from God. God tells him not to use his staff to strike the rock and water to come out. And Moses says, basically, I'll do it anyway. And he does. And God chastises him for that. When we come to the end of Exodus in chapter 40, we see that Moses dies Moses is allowed to see the promised land, but he's not allowed to enter into the promised land. Now, those things don't get tied together directly in the uh, Exodus story itself, but Deuteronomy chapter 32 ties them together where it says that the scriptures tell us that Moses broke faith with God. Therefore, God allowed him to see the promised land, but God did not allow him to enter into the promised land. 
And what we find in here, my friends, is a setup for the relationship between law and grace. Again, Moses did lots of good things in his life, but as we know, it's not the good things that cause a problem, it's the bad things. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, what do we do about the bad things? The Apostle Paul tells us about the bad things in the book of Romans. He says in 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Yes, even Moses. Paul tells us in chapter 6, verse 23, that the wages of our sin is death. That when we sin, we purchase for ourselves death. So here's the point. In other words, the divine law is what helps us see the road to the promised land. But the road to the promised land is not paved with law, it's paved by grace. As Paul also says to us in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, the law was our guardian until Christ came. It was our custodian until Christ came. So there's the, the, the big picture, the Old Testament and the New Testament, but we see that in the transition between Moses and the next figure who comes in by, on, on the scene. So Paul says in Galatians 3, 24, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So as we see Moses, the representation of the law, get us up to the promised land, but not able to enter into the promised land, another figure comes on the scene. Who is this other figure? His name is Yeshua or Joshua. And the very name Joshua means to save. So we'll leave it there and we'll pick up Joshua in the conquest next week. Thank you and God bless you.